Good evening. Um, the second Bible reading this evening comes from Romans chapter 1 and reading from verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Um, you can follow along on the wall or um, in your pew Bibles. Mine's on page 1177. Romans chapter 1 verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with one with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things but also approve of others who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, tonight we're beginning this series. It is a big, big topic, big question, and, and so hopefully we'll uh, be thinking hard and thinking deeply because this is important stuff. And so our question for tonight, our topic is, Dear God, how do we know you exist? You see, it's one of the most fundamental questions in being a human, in being a human being. It's in fact a question that has been asked, in a sense, since the beginning of time. And you can understand why this is an important question to ask. It's very important because, you see, if there is a God at all, if God does exist, if there is a being up there who is supreme, eternal, if God does exist, you see, that's not just good information for our mind. It's not just good information just so that we can know and be happy with that. The existence of God affects everything about us. It's connected to all the other big questions of life, like why are we here? 
it's connected to our purpose in life. The existence of God is connected to the question of how do we get here, our origin. The existence of God is connected to where we are going, our destiny. You see, the existence of God helps answer those other big questions of life. It explains pretty much everything else about being human. And so that big question, dear God, how do we know you exist? I mean, it's a question we ask, isn't it? If you are real God, why don't you make yourself blaringly obvious? If you are true God, why don't you make yourself clearer? If you do exist, God, then why don't you just come and take away any hint of doubt in every living soul in this world? I mean, that would make life so much simpler. No religious wars, no religion fighting against religion. It will be so clear. Well, God, why don't you do that? Now, I remember years ago when I went on my first uh, mission, we went out door knocking in the neighbourhood of this uh, city in New South Wales. It was quite nerve-wracking going around, knocking on doors, trying to uh, chat with people about Christianity to see what they think about Jesus and the church. And so I remember this one conversation I asked this lady. She opened the door and asked, uh, after uh, a few conversations, uh, I asked, do do you believe in, in God? Do you believe that God exists? And the way she answered was quite a shock to me. I wasn't expecting that. She said, well, if God is real, she was just frustrated, if God is real, then why don't he just appear on my hand and and just show me that he is real? Now, what do you say to someone who answers the door that way? What do you say? Well, it got me thinking, what type of God is that? If God did your bidding, if God does, as you say, to be like your genie, that's not God. But you can understand her frustration. If God is real, why doesn't he make himself clearer? And so that underlying question we're exploring today, dear God, How do we know you exist? Well, you see, to answer this question, what we'll be doing tonight is we'll be thinking about this in two parts. The first part is to think about what we already know and see from the world around us, from the natural world around us. This is what uh, theologians call, call general revelation, what we all see and know. Without the Bible, what we see from the world and what we find from general revelation from the world as we observe it and watch and see, what we find are clues or the fingerprints of some supreme being. This is what we call general revelation. It's a bit like if you are to go to a house, you enter a house and you go inside one of the bedrooms. Just say you come to my place and you check out one of the bedrooms and you see a single bed. You see on this bed the pillowcase, it's pink. The bed sheets, it's pink. And then you see pictures on the wall, pictures of flowers and butterflies on the wall. And you see a poster of One Direction, which is not a street sign, it's a band. And then you look in the closet and you find girls' clothing. You find dresses and skirts and whatever else girls wear. And you take a whiff of the room and it smells clean. There's no B.O., no funny odour. Now, what inferences can you make from just observing the room, just looking around, looking at the signs, the signposts? Well, the the clues are pointing in one direction, aren't they? Not There's some pun there, but anyway, I thought that worked. The clues are pointing in the one direction. I mean, are they pointing in the direction of this room belongs to a 50-year-old man who loves pink? who loves flowers and butterflies, who wears dresses 
I mean, is that where it's pointing to? Rather, it's perhaps more like it's pointing to the bedroom of a young girl who has perhaps bad taste in music, but it's pointing in that direction, doesn't it? And so, in a sense, that's what general revelation, that's what we do. We look at, at the natural world around us and we look at these signs, these, the, the signposts, the fingerprints of some divine being. And so, what clues do we see from the world around us as we just look around? Well, what clues? Tonight, I'll speak about, uh, of, on five of these. There are many more, but I'll just touch on five. Clue one. Why is there something rather than nothing? It's a big question, isn't it? It's a big fundamental question. Why is the world here rather than not here? Why are we here rather than not here? It's a big fundamental question. Why is there something rather than nothing? And what do you think this clue points towards? What does it point towards? If there's something here, what does it point towards? Well, it can really, in, in one sense, point to one of two things. It can point to someone placed this world here. Someone or something placed this world here. Someone made this world. Someone created things. Someone gave the things of this world its purpose. It can point in that direction. There is purpose, there is design, there is intelligence. Or it can point to another direction and that is to say, well, it's all here just because it was a big accident. There's no meaning, no purpose, no design where all mere accidents, atoms bouncing off each other. And so let's think about that. Which one's more plausible? You know, the world is here, something's here, there is something rather than nothing. What's more plausible? Well, the way I like to think about it is a bit like this. Just say I'm at home and I'm walking around my home, walking to my coffee machine, going to make a nice coffee, but then there's all these Legos all over the floor and I trip myself, I step on it and I get hurt and I get really angry. What do I do? Well, I'll call out to my kids. You three monkeys, come here. Which one of you placed these toys all over the place? And just say they try to reason with me. But we didn't do it. Their Legos just appeared by accident. It just appeared. It came out of nowhere. I mean, what am I meant to do as a parent? Do I trust in, in them and be gullible? Or do I think, well, one of you monkeys must have done it, otherwise it's your mother and that's no good. <laughs> Someone must have done it. But you see, because there is something rather than nothing, you have to think about why that is. What's the reason for that? What is plausible? Someone did it. Someone did it. Someone powerful enough to bring it into existence. Or it was just all an accident. Mere accident. Which one makes more sense? Well, I would say this clue points to someone who is powerful, who put it in its place. That's the first clue. The second clue, and that is, why is there life rather than no life? Why is there life rather than no life? Why is it that, that this world is not just like all the other planets with just stuff, mountains and rocks and valleys, without life? Why is there life rather than no life? Well, similar idea. It points, you can think about this clue and it points in one of two directions. There's some life giver who has given it life or it was just an accident, just like the rocks by the side of the road. That was an accident. This clue doesn't point to a life giver or an accident. Well, what we do know is that for organic life to exist, the fundamental regularities of life, the constants of physics, physics, 
must be so fine-tuned, so fine-tuned for there to be the possibility of life. It is so difficult. It's just, it just can't happen by mere chance. This is what one scientist uh, says, Francis Collis. He says this, when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force that have precise values. These constants, they can't change, they're they're, they're so precise. If any one of these constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxies, stars, planets or people. The world is so fine-tuned so that life can survive, so that life can exist. There is in fact one in a trillion, trillion chance that our universe supports organic and human life. It's so fine-tuned. Was that mere accident or was that design? So the fact that there is life rather than no life, that's another clue pointing in a direction, perhaps a life giver. Now, clue number three. Clue number three is that there is order and design rather than disorder and chaos. There's order and design in the way the world works. In fact, scientists, all scientists, have to work on the faith that the world will work Orderly. That's the only way they can do science. They, they in fact, have to have faith. I mean, take even the simplest paper clip. The simplest paper clip. I've got one here. How do you think this came into being? How do you think this got to me? Did this come, in a sense, accidentally? Someone in the outback Australia, he was digging for gold, but then he hit some stuff and he was shoveling up all these paper clips. Perfect, like this perfect in shape, intention, and he thought, I don't know what this piece of metal is. It looks funny, curved and long. I might use it as a paper clip. And so he started mining these paper clips and started selling around the world and he became rich. Is this, was this how the paper clip came into being? By accident, mere chance. Well, well, what had to really happen? Well, what you really needed was for real miners to mine for real metal and then for architects and engineers to build factories to melt the metal and then for engineers and designers and architects to build other factories so that they can fashion this. But then you need a designer, an engineer to work out what's the precise tension you need in this metal to hold paper together. How do you do it so that it is cheap? You need designers, engineers and and architects and all sorts of things even to design the robots and factories just so that we can make this little simple paper clip. You see, it's, it's, it's showing us a clue. It's a clue to somewhere, someone. Do we say the design we see in the world was mere chance or accident? It was a pointing to some designer. But that's only a paperclip. That's what we've made. But now let's consider the rest of the natural world. The more you look into nature, the plants, the animals, human beings, if you think about it on a deeper level, You see the intricacies and it's just mind-blowingly spectacular. Everything around us designed precisely for some purpose. Uh, Not long ago, 
last year I, I watched um, a documentary, a BBC documentary about uh, grass-eating African animals. So, you know, the impalas and zebras and gazelles and giraffes and wildebeests. And it was fascinating because all these grass-eating African animals, they could live together out in the grass fields. They could live together. You expect them to be, if there's so many of them, you expect them to fight and kill each other, but they don't. And why is that? What was fascinating was that they survive because they eat different parts of the grass. And you think, isn't that amazing? The zebras, they eat the tallest grasses. The wildebeest, they munch on the shorter ones. The impala, they take the middle level grass. And the giraffes, they pick and pluck the loftiest foliage. And what does that tell you? That these animals just somehow worked it out? We're going to eat different parts of the grass so that we won't kill each other? Or does that point to the mind of some great intelligent being? Or even when you look at the simple DNA, in fact, not so simple, look at the information in a single DNA. If you stretch out a single DNA, it will measure about two metres, one single DNA. And if you take out all the DNA containing one single person and stretch it out and put it end to end, that would, all that information would reach the moon and back 8,000 times. 8,000 times in the one body. That's how much information you carry around. I mean, what can our engineers and computer science and all those guys do? Well, they make these iPhones and they charge you another 100 bucks for only 16 gigs. We're carrying so much more information than that in our bodies. Well, when you consider the human body, the human body, you doctors will know this as you study, you see how wonderful Uh, harmoniously the organs work together, how the body has the capacity to heal itself. Is that mere chance, accident, or is that pointing, another clue, pointing to some great designer? But of course you can choose to believe that it all came by accident. That is okay, you can choose that, but you have to make sense of that. Does it actually make sense? A simple paper clip requires design, but yet our bodies, this world, requires no designer. So that's clue three. Clue four. Clue four is why is there a sense of morality in all of us? There is a right and wrong rather than mere preferences. There is such a thing as morality. There is good, there is right, there is evil and there is wrong. There is a way that human life is meant to work and function and flourish if it lives rightly. You see, it makes sense of life when you live in a way that, that agrees with what is morally right. So if you live in a way that, where you don't kill, where you don't steal, where you don't commit adultery, where you don't be unfaithful to your wife or husband, where you don't lie, where you, you're not dishonest. And just think about that. There is a right and wrong there. Would you rather live next to a neighbour who is a murderer, who is a stealer, who is unfaithful, who is untrustworthy, who is dishonest, or would you rather live next to someone who is not like that? I mean, this, there's this sense of morality, sense of right and wrong, in which we all have inherently somehow, which points to some objective morality, which in fact points to some moral being. Because if you take away some objective morality, what you do have left is just preferences between people. Your preferences against my preferences. It's not about right and wrong anymore. It's about who has the bigger gun and who will win. 
It's immorality. What, what, what is right, what is wrong is pointing towards some moral being. And so if you think about this, we all know inherently that being unfaithful to your husband and wife is wrong. We know that. You don't need to be told that. You'll feel that if it happens to you. We all know inherently that sexual abuse is wrong. You don't need to be told that. You know that when you see it. Terrorist bombings, we know that it is wrong. It is wrong and we can call it evil. But without a moral being who set these moral standards, you can't call that that. You can't call evil, evil. And so this was what convinced one-time atheist C.S. Lewis of Christianity, of the existence of God, his understanding of there is a right and wrong and that points to a moral being. And this was what C.S. Lewis said one time. He said, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What I was comparing this universe with when I called it unjust. Of course I could have given up the, my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. I mean, do you understand what C.S. Lewis was arguing there? If you're calling something unjust, if you're calling um, uh, God, uh, the world unjust, and you're saying that that shows that God does not exist, well, it doesn't work. You can't have one or the other. You must have them both. If you call un- something unjust, then there, that points to a uh, just God. And so here you see there's another clue pointing towards perhaps a moral being who put into the fabric of creation, morality, what is right and wrong. And now clue number five. <clears throat> clue number five. Why is it that relationships is, uh, are important? Relationships are special. That the love that people express between people is good. Where does that come from? The need to be kind and honest and loving for relationships to work. You see, the natural workings of even the family unit How does that work out? How does that begin? Why is it that marriage works when it's one man and one woman? Why is it that that is the unit to raise up children? You see, that is another clue to perhaps a being who is relational in his nature. And C.S. Lewis, he says this, he, he says this, he shows how silly relationships are if they were merely accidents. He, he said, you can't accept in the lowest animal sense be in love with a girl if you know and keep on remembering that all the beauties both of her person and of her character are a momentary and accidental pattern produced by the collision of atoms and that your own response to them is only a sort of psychic phosphorescence arising from the behaviour of your genes. So do you see what he's saying? If we're an accident, then, then your relationship with your love actually means nothing. And so the importance of relationship, of genuine love and care and concern, that's how I want my relationships to be, that is another clue pointing to perhaps a being who is relational, who is personal, who is not impersonal. Now, we've got five clues there. When we put them all together, there's still not proofs for the existence of God. But when you put together all these five clues, they accumulate weight 
points towards the existence of some supreme, divine, powerful, creator, designer who is moral and personal. In fact, God says that this should be so, that all these clues you see around the world should be enough for us to know that God is real. That's what we read in our second reading. God God is saying, the clues that I've given you, they're my fingerprints. They all point to my existence. And that's why humanity will have no excuse for being ignorant of this. And so if we have a look at our second reading again, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, if you look at that, this is what we read. The wrath of God, that is the anger of God, is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And what is it that they're suppressing? Well, what they're suppressing is that since what may be known about God is plain to them. God is saying, look around the world, that points to me because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. But of course, people will still say, well, I don't believe in God. I'm not convinced that he exists. What this tells us is that the reason why people say that is because they suppress that truth by their wickedness. So instead of seeing the clues as pointers to God, they're not seeing any clues. They're saying it's all an accident. But God says here that is to misunderstand the clues, his fingerprints that is placed around the world. And so there's no excuse. And so that's what we do in terms of general revelation. We just observe the world, looking at clues. They're all pointing in the same direction. They're not proofs. They're just clues that point in the same direction. But though there, is, there are all these clues that point to that direction of some powerful divine being, these clues are in fact not enough to tell us which God we're talking about. You look at these clues, you see that there might be a designer, a moral, personal being. They're not, in fact, enough to tell us which God we're talking about. And so it leaves that question open. Which God is that? The God of Islam? The God of the Bible? Or some other God? And it also still leaves open the question, how many gods are there? It might point towards some divinity, but how many gods are there? One or many? You see, the clues point in that direction, but they're not proofs. They're pointing in that direction, and so they don't give us certainty just yet. Now, what do you think we need to be certain that God exists? We're trying to work up to God, looking around the world, looking at the clues, seeing where they point, but it has a limit. What do you think we need to know that God really exists? We say what we need is what we call special revelation. Not general revelation, but special revelation. What we need is for God to personally reveal himself. Not us working up to God, but God coming down to us and revealing himself. That is how he can be certain. We can't work our way up to God, working him out with our minds, if our minds are limited and small. What we in fact need is for God to come down and to make himself known. It's a bit like you know that bedroom illustration before. You're in the bedroom, you're looking at all these belongings and the things on a wall and they're clues that point toward that room belonging to a young girl. But you don't know much about that girl apart from this room perhaps belongs to a young girl. A bit like looking at creation. This world perhaps belongs to some creator God. 
but you don't know too much about this God. Well, this room anyway is pointing towards belonging to some girl, but you don't know much about her until she comes, until she comes home and she says to you, this is my room. At that point, you in fact get to know her, know her name, know what she's like and you can ask her, why would you like One Direction? You get to know her on that level, on that intimate level if she reveals herself, if she discloses herself. It's in fact the same way we work all the time in our relationships, you see. For you to know me, you can't just look at me and think you know everything about me. You might watch me, see how I dress, see how I walk, see how I speak, see what I do and you make inferences about me but until I speak to you and disclose myself to you, that is only how you will know me for real. And so that is what we need from God. We've looked at his clues, the fingerprints, they point that direction but we can only really know God if he reveals himself. And so what has God done then? What has God done in human history? Has God, in fact, made himself known? You see, God has. God has made himself known in some definitive way. God has made himself known by entering into human history in his son, Jesus Christ, the eternal creator, entered into our existence in his son, Jesus Christ. And so, in a sense, where this is leading is, you want proof for God? There are clues, they point in that direction, but you want real proof? Well, Jesus is the proof that God exists. Jesus Christ is the proof that God exists. And the clues confirm that. The clues point to that. And this past week, we started a Bible study with our ESL ministry here. And, and in this Bible study, we tried to explain to them the, the Christian message, what it's all about. And so this week the topic was God as creator. God as the one who made the universe, God as the one who made us. And so one of the students asked, have you seen God? It was a question I didn't expect. I thought them to be good students, just listen. And, but that, one of the students, have you seen God? Well, what do you say to that? How do you answer that? Well, the answer is, well, if I lived 2,000 years ago in Palestine, I would have seen God walk the streets of Jerusalem. You see, to see Jesus is to see God. That is how God has chosen to reveal himself to this world. And that's why Philip, one of the apostles, one of the disciples of Jesus, he wanted Jesus to show him, show us the Father, show us what God is like. Now look at what Jesus, how Jesus responded. Jesus said in John 14, Don't you know, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me, has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and that the Father is in me? You see what Jesus is claiming there? He's claiming divinity. You want to see what God is like? You just have to see me. And then he goes on to say, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. And so what Jesus was claiming there was to be God in the flesh. To see the miracles of Jesus is to see the power of God. To see the compassion and mercy of Jesus is to see the the compassion and mercy of God. To see the love and care of Jesus is to see the love and care of God. 
to see the profound wisdom of Jesus is to see the profound wisdom of God. And so our question, God, how do we know you exist? Well, the question about the existence of God becomes a question really about the person of Jesus Christ. You see, the question about the existence of God becomes a question about the person of Jesus Christ. Show that he was not God, show that he was a fraud, then you have got no evidence that God exists in a sense. Show that he was wrong and this is all rubbish. But show that he was true, who he claims to be, he is consistent. If he really is who he says he is, then this all becomes true. And so if you are sharing with your friends, how do I know God exists? Well, what do you say? We can say, well, look at the clues. They're pointing in the same direction. They're pointing towards the divine maker who is supreme over all, who is moral, who is relational. But in the end, you must end up with the person of Jesus Christ who reveals God to us. If you want to know God definitively, then study Jesus. If you want to know God, if he really exists, then study Jesus. That's the way you can know with certainty that God exists. And so where does that leave us? Well, you see, if you think about this big question, knowing that God exists always calls for a response. Knowing that God is the Son of God always calls for a response. And that's why it's been called one of the most dangerous ideas in human history. Peter Hitchens, a former Marxist revolutionary turned Christian on the show Q&A, he, he once said this. He said, The most dangerous idea in human history and philosophy remains the belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and rose from the dead and that is the most dangerous idea you'll ever encounter. And he goes on to say, well, people ask, why is that? Why would that be dangerous? He goes on to say, it's because it alters the whole of human behaviour and all our responsibilities. You see, if there is a God, we can't just live for ourselves. There is someone who made us and owns us and we owe our life to someone who is not us. We're responsible and accountable to someone. And he goes on to say, it turns the universe from a meaningless chaos into a designed place in which there is justice and there is hope and therefore we all have a duty to discover the nature of that justice and work towards that hope. It alters us all. If we, if we reject it, it alters us all as well. It is incredibly dangerous. It's why so many people turn away from it. See, so many people don't want to believe that God exists because if I know that God exists, it means that he owns me. I'm accountable to him. I'd rather not live life that way, so I just ignore God. But what I'm doing is I'm suppressing the truth like what we read in Romans. And so what will you do with this idea? Well, if you are a Christian, if you want to point people to God, that God exists, that he is real, then you point people to Jesus, his son, how God has disclosed himself to this world. If you're not yet a Christian, you're still exploring. Well, the way to really find out is for you to encounter Jesus in the pages of the Bible. It's a dangerous idea to explore this. But that is the way you can come to see that God does exist. And in the end, this is too important to ignore. Too important to ignore, too important to turn against. Because in the end, if this proves to be true, proves to be true and you have not accepted this, proves to be true, you've got 
everything to lose. If it's false, it doesn't matter anyway. We're all in an accident. But if it's true, you've got everything to lose. So let me encourage you to explore this. Consider Jesus and find out for yourself that God is real. But I'm going to pray now and ask that God might help you and help us who are Christians to be bold in declaring, in sharing that God is real. And we know that because of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in this world which seems so messy sometimes and hard to understand why we are here and these big questions of life, we do thank you that in your kindness you have revealed yourself, disclosed yourself definitively in your son Jesus who came to reveal you to us but he came also to reconcile us to you. We pray Lord for all of us here that if we do not know you yet that you might help us in that and those of us who do know you help us to boldly proclaim you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So we've had a couple of questions come through, not many but a couple Uh, and so we'll just put up the question that we've got here. What if a Muslim or a Buddhist for instance uses the arguments of intelligent design, morality and random chance to prove their God's existence? So they've got all those same clues. What if they use those? Mm. Um, So so that's why looking at um, the world around us there are clues that point towards some divine being. And so, in a sense, that's what those um, uh, uh, Muslims would do as well, exactly the same deal. But how do we know which God we're talking about? We only know that top down, by revelation. We can't work our way up. And so, top down, God has disclosed himself in Christianity. How has God disclosed himself? In his son Jesus, a historical figure. You can verify him historically. You can verify what he says historically. You can verify his miracles historically. Whereas, for example, in Islam, it was a personal, individual revelation to him. You cannot verify that historically. It's just unverifiable. It's not saying it's true or not. It's just unverifiable. So, with Christianity, you can actually think historically, study historically, work out, is Jesus for real? So it it really comes down to how has God chosen to reveal himself definitively? In Christianity we have Jesus coming down, showing us that God is real. In Islam you just have the personal word from Muhammad. In Buddhism, in Buddhism they don't actually believe in God, they're they're sort of like um, what they want in fact is you to be one with the gods, one with everyone. So in a sense it's a different idea in Buddhism. So it's more of a cycle rather than a beginning and an end. Um, Good question, in fact. Good question. Worth exploring. If you are exploring, worth thinking about the different world religions and working out whether they're consistent with what they say, how how you live. Does it actually make sense of life? Worth doing that. But please continue to ask questions and we'll do that afterwards. And we are going to sing now.